Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Uh, in this episode, I'm very excited to uh, bring the conversation I had with Lewis Dartnell. Lewis is a research scientist, presenter, and author out in London. He uh, has his PhD, University College in London. He is now a professor in science communication at the University of Westminster. Uh, more recently, his, his research has taken him into the field of astrobiology and the search for uh, life on Mars. He's had various fellowships. He's um, well published and is the author of a handful of books. And we talk about uh, mostly his latest book, but we it's a it's a triptych, so it's a type of trilogy of sorts. So we do talk about all three, if you will. So the first in that uh, trilogy is the knowledge, uh, which is uh, fantastic. The second one there. Um, and one of, one of my favorites, honestly, I really like the second book is origins, how the earth made us and his most recent book, which is just as fantastic. It's really, really, uh, excellent actually is, um, being human, how our biology shaped world history. So I would say we spend most of our time on, uh, origins and being human. Uh, we kind of referenced the knowledge a little bit in the beginning, uh, but that's where the, much of the conversation is uh, focused on the last two. We start about this trilogy of books. You know, how did he come about writing these these books uh, kind of together? What was his aim and his purpose? We talk about our what are our essentials for survival. Uh, we talk about the uh, diversification of hominids. We talk about plate tectonics, the Fertile Crescent, and the East African Rift. Uh, we talk about differences and similarities of different human species, um, the importance of oceans through time on Earth, which is something that we don't, I don't, I mean, people in this field think about it, but I think the common person doesn't really kind of consider it. We just think, oh, the oceans are there, they've always been around. But he has this way of really talking about things we kind of, I think, myself included, take for granted, such as the oceans and how they evolve and change. Fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. Talk about different materials for different uh, different civilizations. Uh, we talk about the impact of wind on colonization exploration. I, I found that in the book and in the conversation absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed that uh, that bit of the the book. We talk about the role of cooperation for humans, pair bonding, uh, royal families, uh, disease in humans, the impact of war, and many other topics. Uh, Lewis is is absolutely wonderful. He is he is absolutely. Um, kind and very nice, very brilliant, um, and just super easy to have a conversation with. That's how the conversation kind of feels, very conversational in many many aspects. And um, excellent writer. I mean, he's, the way he communicates science is, is you know, pretty pretty powerful and, and makes it accessible for, for anybody to, to kind of get. So I can't recommend his books highly enough. Uh, of course, uh, you can find this conversation and all other past and upcoming conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, follow, engage. Uh, always love to hear from folks when they listen to conversations. I'm also on YouTube. You can subscribe and follow there, engage in there as well. And uh, get out there and uh, get Lewis's books. They're all fantastic. And uh, now I bring you Lewis Darton. I'm here with Lewis Dartnell. Lewis, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, no problem at all. I've been very much looking forward to our chat. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Uh, so you have a trilogy 
that is just being completed. You've written three books. Uh, the newest one is uh, Being Human. So we'll talk about that one. But uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit kind of of all three. Before we do, let's. Uh, why don't you tell us who who you are, uh, what your background's in, and what you're currently uh, uh, researching <laughs> and studying and all the particulars? <laughs> this sounds a little bit like speed dating now. So, uh, my, <laughs> right. name's, my name's Lewis, Lewis Dartnell. Tell me about your uh, previous a... relationships. Let me see all the... <laughs> right, exactly. right. How that long have you been single? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Currently, currently looking for friendship or maybe more. <laughs> um, yes, I'm a professor at the University of Westminster here in the centre of, of London in the United Kingdom. And my actual research field is in a relatively new field of science called astrobiology, which is all about looking for the possibility of there being life beyond the Earth. So I've come from a biology background, and I spend my time in my lab with my PhD students now thinking about whether there could be simple life, so bacterial-like life on the surface of Mars, for example. And if it is there, what would be the best way of trying to find it? What's what so-called biosignatures or signs of life? Um, might we be looking for with our Mars rovers or equipment and instrumentation we'd strap on the front of our Mars rover. But alongside that research, which is which is very interdisciplinary, so it's biology mixed with planetary science and, ge- and geology and uh, astrophysics and, and robotics and instrumentation. Alongside that research, I really enjoy doing so science communication or outreach and telling the general public about things that I get really excited about and that I'm passionate about which links into the books that, that, I've, that I've written. I sort of do that uh, science communication alongside my science research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was just having a conversation about this uh, yesterday of how much of a need we have for uh, really accurate and good science communication. Yeah. And uh, I think it's become, people have realized this and, and, and many uh, good scientists and, and researchers like yourself are are doing that, and uh, but I can imagine it's a different type of uh, uh, skill set, right? Obviously, writing a, a, a research paper for a scientific journal is much different than writing a book for like kind of your everyman or every woman kind of thing. I mean, so. in, in a way, it is, but in a way, they're also very very similar. So one of the, the mm. things I point out and hammer home to my students, so I, I run courses in science communication and how mm. to do it well at the university as well, mm. is actually there key transferable skills Mm. and anytime you do a research paper or you write like a lab report you get that little bit better at Mm. writing in general and beating Mm. writer's block and formulating your ideas in a clear structure and a logical progression and writing sentences which are easy to read for Mm. for someone to to absorb that information and those are exactly the same kind of skills you need for writing you know a complete book My, my phd thesis was roughly the length of the first book Mm. that I published mm. and obviously use different language yeah but you don't dumb down I don't think for the general public you you just use you translate into language that they could understand mm. and you try to avoid jargon or terminology or words that have very specific meanings in science mm. that maybe the general public wouldn't understand but you know absolutely you go in with the, the concepts uh, and explain them well mm. uh, for whoever's you know whoever you're talking to mm. yeah that's, that's a very nice way of saying it so, okay, so real quick, I guess, tell us about, so you've written a handful of books, but the more recent is this kind of quasi-trilogy. There's a there's a, a link of sorts that connects them. So the, the what, what I'm referencing is, uh, the first here is The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch. Second one is Origins, How the Earth Shaped Human History. And the very recent one uh, that's uh, about to come out is uh, Being Human, 
our biology-shaped world history. They're all fantastic. I guess, did you have the idea in mind to kind of write a trilogy three kind of thing, or did it just sort of kind of happen that way? Yeah, it kind of happened. Um, it's actually the first book I wrote was um, a book for the general reader about this new emerging science of astrobiology, uh, and that's called Life in the Universe, A Beginner's Guide. And then I wrote uh, an illustrated children's book with Dorling Kinsley after that, which was a lot of fun uh, to work on. And that's called My Tourist Guide to the Solar System. So it's, it's full of colour, full of graphics, full of pictures. And the idea behind that is if in the future you could go on a holiday in outer space with your family, uh, where would you want to go to? What are the key activities or adventure sports you can do different planets and moons in the solar system that you can't do here on Earth? What, what sort of souvenirs would you want to make sure you bring back you can get out in space you can't get in on, on earth so that was fun i so said it was aimed at quite a young audience but it was all about getting you know real planetary science in through the back door grab someone's imagination mm. but then communicate something about the, the solar system the universe um once once you've got their attention and then with the three more recent books although in the introduction to being human i, I kind of describe them as a trilogy i only really mean that in the sense that they come from a similar angle so with the, with the knowledge and then origins now most recently being human, I'm just trying to look at the world that we live in, the modern world that we all take for granted and peer behind the scenes, find out how we got here. How did things develop through the course of human history? And what were the main influences and driving factors behind that process um, to, to understand why we we're here where we are now and, and you know, what might lie in our future? Mm. So the first of those Three books, the knowledge takes quite a, again, sort of imaginative conceit as its premise. Mm. And for that book, I imagine there's been some kind of global catastrophe, some kind of doomsday event or, or an apocalypse. Mm. And the vast majority of the human race has died. But let's say that we've we've survived. We, we find ourselves in a post-apocalyptic survival community, standing in the smoking ruins of the civilization that we just taken for granted in our, in our everyday lives and scratching our heads and, and trying to work out what what do we do now what, what what would we most need to know how to do for ourselves how to make for ourselves how to start supporting ourselves if you can't rely on you know just walking down the high street and popping into a supermarket to get what you need how, how do you make things for yourself and using that to, to peer behind the curtain of the modern world to see where things come from everything that's just hidden and we, we take for granted um, and then with origins, I wanted to look at human history from the point of view of how the stage of planet Earth has been a key influence in the playing out of, of different civilizations and cultures and societies and features the world we live on from plate tectonics to atmospheric circulation to where different resources or metals or minerals can be found mm. and, and sort of play around with with that idea about how the earth has made us, how the earth has directed mm. uh, and certainly influenced um, parts of, of human history. Mm. Well, I guess that with the first book, the knowledge it is a kind of, you, you sell it as like a survival guide, <clears throat> which is really cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a really, it's a really, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun read in that way. Um, and, you know, I, when I was reading, I was kind of thinking of, uh, the Last of Us video game, where the yeah, show, if people yeah. have seen it, it's kind of something. I'm a big fan as well. Yeah, yeah, this is really cool. Um, I guess it was, it was interesting though, because it, it put me in a space of trying to think about what what really is needed, and and I guess 
so there is a kind of through line here, but for us as humans, what, what do you see as like essential for us living? So obviously we know food and water, but yeah. uh, and shelter and you talk about fuel and, and medicine, things like that. But you know, how, how, how I guess we do these things, we know some of the things that are essential, but are there other things that are essential for just for, for humans to survive? I mean, I guess you could say really anywhere. I mean, obviously it might be different on other planets if we were able to do that, but here on earth, even what are these kind of essential things we need to survive? And then not just survive, but I also think that there's some element of how do we thrive as well? There's obviously a mental capacity, a psychological capacity as well, mm. a social component. Um, but really these essentials for, for living, if it's in a, you know, kind of a, a post apocalyptic world and, um, and I guess where, I mean, do you see us more in those kind in that kind of idea of a future of being more in rural places, being easier than cities or how do you kind of see those things? Yeah. So in chapter one of the book, I, I sort of lay out this conceit, lay out the premise that there's, there's been a nuclear war, there's been an asteroid strike, whatever. It doesn't really matter. I don't really care after page one, what has caused the world that we live in to collapse and disappear. You've woken up morning after, the night before, when the world as we know it has ended. What do you do now? And so in chapter one, I look at basic of life hacks that you could use to keep yourself alive in the first days and weeks after everything that you know has, has disappeared. And you could think about this in terms of um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, everything from the very fundamentals of drinking water to food to shelter like how, how do i provide for the, the, you know, the basic necessities of the human body so you don't end up dying the first days or weeks and there's interesting bits of science again that, and science and technology that comes in here and so for example with drinking water you can obviously boil water to, to kill the germs that are in it but that uses up a lot of fuel that has certain sort of negative uh, aspects you can't really do it in bulk very easily mm-hmm. but there's certain techniques that are being taught around the developing world today in what's known as intermediate technology or appropriate technology to stop millions of people succumbing to very easily preventable waterborne diseases like Mm -hmm. like cholera, like typhoid, like Mm -hmm. diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Um, And this particular technique is known as SODIS or solar disinfection. And all you need is an empty plastic bottle, which you put your suspect water in, water you've scooped out of a lake or out of a river, and you simply leave that water out in the sun. And because you've constrained that water to be very shallow in that bottle, the UV rays in the sunlight can shine straight through it and kill or inactivate any waterborne disease, any pathogens in that water. So you can come back to it a few days later, put it to your lips and drink it. Know for a fact that it is now safe to drink. You've disinfected it. So a lot of what I play with in chapter one, are, like I say, these sort of life hacks and, and linking into technologies that are very, very important today. Um, maybe in the developing world, but they don't have all the privileges and advantages that the your I do sat in front of my laptop, you know, having having a podcast interview. Um, and then over the subsequent chapters of the knowledge of the book, I look at different areas of the modern world, different areas of technology and capability, whether that's the basics of primitive chemistry or communication technologies or transport technologies or energy. And in every chapter, Start from absolute basics, something you could genuinely do. You could, you could take copy of the book, you take the knowledge, you know, out into your backyard, out into a forest, and do some of those things I describe at the beginning of every chapter with your own hands yourself as a kind of you know, maker project or craft project. And then as every each chapter progresses, I talk about something more and more complicated technologies as you get closer and closer to rebuilding 
a technological world like our own today as we sort of progress mm. back through those stages. Mm. It's interesting. I, I always have wondered <clears throat> with these kinds of things of if you if, if everything's kind of you know in, in in you know in ashes or in rubble or whatever for the most part, how how having thousands of of years of of knowledge and in, in from an agrarian to an industrial mm. to a technical uh, society, you know how quickly would we be able to rebuild all that stuff? Right, like it's before it's all like. Well, we don't know this, and it's just yeah. the next thing, the next thing. But if you have all of that, it's like, well, would that kind of get in the way of like, well, we 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 did have it like this, but can can we get there again or something better? I always wonder, you know, would it take you know fifty thousand years, or would it take like you know a hundred years? Like you know, I always yeah, wonder that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the first time round, as a you know, as a as a as a species, as a civilization, we're basically fumbling around in the dark. We were right. stumbling across discoveries and inventing things when we had the, the prerequisite knowledge for it. Mm-hmm. But the ideas I play around with in, in the book and the knowledge are: what if all of that information and knowledge wasn't lost? What if we're able to preserve that yeah. after some kind of global catastrophe and add a kind of DIY guide to rebooting civilization as quickly as possible? Which is the conceit for the knowledge it's obviously impossible to have a single book that does that but that that's at least uh what the, the book is playing around with as an idea and therefore could you accelerate that recovery process could you leapfrog from one technology to another and sort of jump over intermediate steps that you know might have taken 100 years in our own history yeah. how, how quickly could you accelerate that process and of course it's not just an issue of the key knowledge and understanding that you need it's the people that you have in your society and mm-hmm. how many people have survived if you're got just a few hundred then maybe you would end up regressing back to hunter-gatherer type mm-hmm. lifestyle mm-hmm. type type existence mm-hmm. if perhaps you had a few tens of thousands of people that you could get together and live peaceably together and start pulling in the same direction then maybe you could have a genuine attempt at rebounding or rebooting civilization mm-hmm. much much more quickly second time round, and, and sort of race through history 2.0 if you like mm-hmm. if only you'd had that most useful human understanding written down so you didn't have to reinvent everything yourself but you mm. could you could leapfrog back to it mm. uh, the the book is great because it's it feels very fun but it also feels you know rooted in in a lot of you know pragmatics mm. I, I guess the 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 fun question i have here is obviously there's been so many uh novelizations and dramatizations of of this yeah. kind of world is there anything in particular where you're like yeah that 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 kind of gets it kind of actually pretty close of like what it would be whether it's you know matt damon making potatoes on mars <laughs> or i mean the martian's a great book i i, I enjoy that book i i'm um, kicking myself that i didn't write the martian myself because it's basically on the venn diagram overlap of yeah, two months yeah. what i've done like it's like the mars science and the astrobiology research and then it's the knowledge and right. rebuilding going back to basics and if only i'd put two and two together and written the martian myself right. i would have been yeah. quite a rich man by now i think yeah it's a it's a great book i actually ridley scott did a great job with the movie too mm. uh, but oh yeah or, or like you know obviously people think of like you know the walking dead or the last of us or the road or you know there's plenty of you know mad max there's plenty of yeah. of of, of idea, examples of it. but is there one that you like where you're like yeah that kind of it's not that far off it kind of gets a lot of elements of it yeah what's most interesting about almost all of the post-apocalyptic literature or films mm-hmm. is that they tend to focus on a particular period after the collapse after the apocalypse and that sort of immediate aftermath when people are running around you know being quite nasty to each other and it's a very dog-eat-dog world and everyone's scavenging with 
weapons to defend themselves and you know trying to scavenge for the last can of, of soup that they can find in a, in a ruined rubble right. of, of a supermarket right and so i don't really spend that much time talking about that in the knowledge because i think we've all seen the film i think right. we all understand right. it would be unpleasant it would be you know a certain element of darwinism and, and survival of the fittest but one of the resounding lessons from history is that whenever there is a large disaster or something like uh, the Black Death, when the 1300s, you know, you could describe that genuinely as an apocalypse. It killed a huge fraction of the population in Europe and possibly across uh, Asia as well. But society was pretty resilient and bounced back very quickly. So chapter one of the knowledge picks up after that um, period of, of, you know, violence and lawlessness and people have got back together in largely peaceful societies and are now trying to work out how to basically make their lives easier and more comfortable by reinventing things and, and, and I say, progressing back through technology. So there's there are some books that deal with that quite well with that longer process. And actually, if you go to the book's website, which is the hyphenknowledge.org, uh, there's a list of recommended reading books there. And there's things like, um, you know, sort of I Am Legend or The Road on there but also some cracking stories that look at the longer term recovery process over sort of decades, if not the centuries after whatever the event might be. Yeah. I think that, I think that is interesting. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the key, right? I wonder how it would be, it'd probably be a little bit different, but uh, it'd be cool to see some films or shows where it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to go a hundred years after the event and see how things are and see yeah. what, what, what happens. And uh, that'd be really, really interesting. There's um, a book um, <clears throat> called Lost in the Sea of Time, where um, the island of Nantucket, um, mm. that's how you pronounce it, it, gets, it, mm-hmm. it through some narrative conceit, gets thrown back um, into the sort of um, like Bronze Age. Mm. And they've got the knowledge in their minds and the heads of people who were on that island, and they start going right back to scratch, you know, sort of, uh, you know making wagons for themselves and building an iron forge. And that story does very well. That's sort a of progression back through the through mm. the technological levels. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about the second book. I absolutely love this book. Uh, it reminds me a lot of. Um, I had a really wonderful conversation with Henry G. Um, mm. Maybe a year, year and a half ago, he had a book that came out, short history of the Earth or something like that. Yeah. Uh, we talked for over three hours and we talked to you just, we, we went literally from, you know, beginning <laughs> of earth 4.6 or whatever billion, billion <laughs> all the way to the present and all the difference. I have this strange obsession with, um, uh, uh, periods of the earth. I find it fascinating, yeah. like yeah. the Jurassic and the Jurassic and pre-Cambrian. And then we Holocene, like I find all of that, just the, the phases of the, uh, different epochs of the earth. Yeah. yeah. So, super fascinating i'm not too sure why but uh so there's a lot of that in in the in this book as well which is great so i definitely want to want to land on plate tectonics because i think that's super super interesting and super important but i guess um maybe just talk about kind of where you start the book is you talk about where we get to we have uh and again many books have been written on this but we have homo sapiens now but um there's a lot of other types of humans that were on running around for is it, what are we at six seven different types uh, at least four at the same time um uh so you had denisovans and homo sapiens and you had neanderthals and yeah there's definitely a lot of 
other types of humans, if you will, humans, um, hominoids or whatever, at the same time. And then, you know, I guess we're like kind of one of the last ones that have survived. But just kind of tell us from, we have this common ancestor uh, with uh, primates, and then the tree just kind of branches out. And then we oh, get to where, nice, yeah. where, where we're at now. So maybe just kind of give us that kind of overview of we have Astropithecus in there, we have Erectus, we have we have all these different uh, uh, kind of precursors that aren't around anymore. But kind of give us the kind of overview, a snapshot of, of uh, primates and humans. Mm, so my, my motivation for origins was, was to try to write a, a big history book, like say this big sweeping narrative that, that covers the, the, the millions or billions of years of our planet and, and our story within that, but trying to write a big history book from a scientific perspective and, and including a lot of planetary science and, and geology, as you mentioned. And the first chapter of Origins is on the origin of us, the origin of our species. Um, what drove our evolution in Africa and predominantly East Africa? And what was the geological driving force or influence behind that? And as you said, there's, there's been this whole... Uh, diversification of hominin, so human-like species uh, across Africa. Uh, several of our cousin species also migrated out of Africa to, to you know, colonize and inhabit uh, other regions of the world before we began our own great migration uh, around 70, maybe 65,000 years ago. But one of the key questions with the origins of, of us, of, of Homo sapiens, of, of our branch of this human family tree, is what was it that drove our uh, what was it that drove our evolution to become so exquisitely intelligent um, and so adept at using tools and language and conceptualizing abstract ideas and coordinating so well together in, in groups and societies? And the answer that's been emerging in recent years, and some of this work has been done by people like uh, Mark Maslin at UCL, so people who've been looking at that interface between. Uh, planetary science, earth sciences and evolution and biology, is that in East Africa, there's been a fairly special process going on over the last five, six million years as, as we've been evolving there as, as primate species, which is the ripping open of the great East African rift valley. It's effectively a crack in the skin of the planet's tectonic fracture. And as the um, land has been rising up around East Africa, uh, and then cracking open the skin, that's caused the drying out of this whole continental region. Because if you look at a look at an atlas or look at a, a map of the world, you, know, you run your eyes across the equator, what you'll notice is that all around the world is this band of rainforest, tropical rainforest. Mm -hmm. The equator is where it's very warm and mm -hmm. it rains lots, and that can support lots of rainforests across East Africa, across the Amazon, across the the archipelago of islands in Southeast Asia, that's all around the world, apart from this weird little corner of East Africa where we were growing up, where we were evolving. And so fundamentally to drive hominin evolution, primate evolution from being hairy, tree-swinging, ape-like creatures into bipedal, upright, walking, hairless, naked, human-like creatures, is you have to turn woodland and forest into dry grassland into savannah and that, that was part of this earth rising tectonic movement but then specifically with the great east african rift valley 
because plenty of places around the world have dried out and you evolve the camel, right? You evolve something which is good for, for, for dry conditions. But we, we, we developed a different evolutionary solution. That was for intelligence. And what seems to have been the reason behind that is that because of this interaction between plate tectonics and the Great Rift Valley and wobbles in Earth's climates and things like our orbit around the sun, there have been periods of climactic instability. And we evolved our big brains, we evolved our intelligence to be able to outthink that chaotic, unpredictable environment. It, it was those planetary processes that gifted us our big brains and our intelligence, which we then carried around the world when we, when we migrated out of Africa and, and colonized the rest of the planet, and then started inventing things like agriculture and you know, large, dense populations and settlements and cities and, and civilization. But it was, it was an earth movement, it was a tectonic process. Um, right at the beginning of that story. Yeah, one of the things that's super interesting about that is <clears throat> the Earth was not would not have been habitable for humans for much of its existence. Billions of years, it would not have. Mm. It was almost a different planet in some ways than what we know today. It, I mean, it, it was, was it was an alien world yeah, for all intents and purposes, absolutely. It, based on on you know no oxygen based on you know how things were and in, in terms of heat levels or ice level it's it just the, the temperature so many aspects of the earth was not habitable for 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 humans or, or maybe even for mammals that's not the world we live in now i guess there obviously many people will know about the supercontinents pangea mm. uh there's a, there's another one or there's another uh, big 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 uh, body uh, land of um a mass at another point as well but the we have this big split is that where we have okay so the first question is have we always had these kind of plate tectonics have they always been these kind of plates on the earth um that have been moving and shifting um or was it really after the breaking up of pangea that we still we have this now what we know today is all these different ones how many are there are they still shifting are they moving um, I guess that that story, and then and then what is it specifically about this one uh, area, this one region of the East African Rift that makes it so um, kind of like the perfect storm for all the things mm. that we need as humans? Yeah, so Pangaea is only the most recent supercontinent, mm. and there's very good geological evidence for supercontinents existing before that, and even further back in the mists of planetary history, in the mists of time. And indeed, the separate continents that we are familiar with from our, you know, our globe, from our world map today, will once again recollide and kind of congeal and, and, and stick together, fuse together in the future, into a sort of future Pangaea, future supercontinent. Mm. So it seems that there's some process, and it's not entirely well understood as yet, but some process that's driving cycles between the formation of supercontinents and then them being ripped apart again mm. into the situation we find uh, today, where there's you know, lots of smaller landmasses, lots of continents, which will then again be driven together to, 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 to collide and, and recoalesce. So plate tectonics um, has been has been a, you know, a constant. It's been something which has been a dynamic process on the Earth for, for billions and billions of years. And it's a very slow process. So we're not mm -hmm. really subject to plate tectonics in human history, unless you know you happen to live on a um on a convergent boundary where there's there's earthquakes, but that's sort of your direct connection with the mm -hmm. ongoing process of plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, through the whole of human history, 
the world map has been the same. It's been static because the Earth moves so slowly on a human timescale. But the map that we found ourselves in, the map that we we came to um, colonize as we migrated out of Africa and we developed civilizations and empires and you know this great tussle of, of, of humanity against itself over the millennia has all been playing out on effectively the same stage, mm. the stage for the human story that was created by plate tectonics um, you know, as we're evolving and, and, and leading up to that process. We've, we've talked already about how plate tectonics was a crucial driver in creating the conditions and the unstable climatic conditions in East Africa that were partly responsible for driving our evolution towards intelligence. But there also seems to be an influence of plate tectonics in where the first civilizations arose as well. And I'm sure many people are already familiar with Mesopotamia, the, the land between the rivers. And the, the, this, the, fertile, the fertile crescent, yeah? The fertile crescent, exactly. Mesopotamia is part of the fertile crescent. And this is a very interesting um, geological region. And what happened with the ripping open of Earth's crust in the formation of the great East African Rift Valley is that uh, another crack opened up. Uh, in Earth's crust, and basically ripped off the Arabian Peninsula from Africa, and then the Red Sea has been widening and getting, you know, growing and growing, in the same way that the Middle Atlantic rift in the, in the Middle Atlantic has, has been a spreading sense, it's been growing. So this huge slab of continental crust of Arabia has been swinging upwards like a barn door caught in the wind, and it's now slammed into the underside of Eurasia. And when continents slam into each other, you drive up mountain ranges like the Himalayas, like the Alps. And it was the Zagros Mountains that were driven up by the collision of the Arabian Peninsula into Eurasia. And when you get young, heavy mountain ranges, they sit very heavily onto the skin, onto the crust of our planet. And and the crust of the the skin of the planet basically deforms. It kind of bends downward Mm -hmm. in what's known as a uh, foreland basin. And so quite often running along the feet of mountain ranges, you have systems of rivers. Rivers flow downhill. There's nothing surprising or magical about that. Mm -hmm. And so Mesopotamia is just the historical name to this foreland basin lying along the feet of the Zagros mountain range that was driven up by the collision of the Arabian Peninsula into Eurasia. And because that's a very um, recent mountain range, it's only newly formed, as it erodes, and that silt is carried downriver by the Tigris and Euphrates and then is deposited in the plains, that silt is very, very rich in plant nutrients. It's very fertile. Mm. So all the things you need for easy agriculture all come together in Mesopotamia, that foreland basin alongside the Zagros Mountains. You've got very fertile, uh, silty soil. You've got uh, the flooding of rivers, which gives you um, reliable access to water. And you've got these flat plains for for growing your crops on. It's Mm. it's one of the places where civilization first emerged. And around the time when Mesopotamian civilizations were first emerging, around the other side of the planet, in the foreland basin running along the toes of the uh, Himalayas, was the Indus River Valley culture. So civilization emerging on the other side of the planet, but under identical geological conditions so again this is there's another sort of gift of plate tectonics in in human history that's that's i i really enjoy the way you explain that because one of the things i've always wondered is is what is what is what is so special about this area of the planet that Mm. 
there just seems to be so many civilizations that have come there. Obviously, you have Sumerians and you have um, uh, uh, Assyrians and you have, you know, uh, the Persians, like all these in the same kind of region. What is it about humans that have just lived there for so many thousands of years? And, and that environmental explanation makes a lot of sense. And yeah. it doesn't sound like there's anything uh, inherently or magical about the place. It just is based on the partly at least uh, the shifts in plate tectonics that make yeah, it this kind of fertile ground. Sort of geographical factors mm-hmm. that have yeah. made growing crops easier there than in other places around the world. What's been interesting, though, is, is through the history of Mesopotamia, um, with their irrigation systems, the canals they dug, they kept on flooding their fields with water to irrigate them, and then they dried in the sunshine, and the minerals that dissolved in that water, i.e. the salts, therefore became more and more concentrated in the land. So over hundreds and, and then thousands of years of intensive agriculture in that region, it's actually becoming less and less agriculturally mm. productive. And mm. then that's one of these you know, interplays mm. between features of the planet and human history and then human activity changing mm. the environment and the mm. landscape that we, that we live in. Yeah, it's fascinating. So uh, so this is more, I guess, you, this is a technically, um, much of these civilizations are in... Um, is it the Neolithic period? Or I guess it's maybe before that or during that in terms of when you have uh, certain kinds of empires from uh, Mesopotamia, whether it's the Assyrians or the Persians or uh, the Babylonians or whatever. I, I can't remember where it falls in the epoch of, of Earth. Yeah, history. so, so the, 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 the Neolithic is used to describe um, sort of the, the most recent chapter of Stone Age technology, if you mm-hmm. like. And so mm-hmm. this is characterized by... Um, the use of very fine flakes of stone to make things like arrow tips. So it, mm. it's sort of the, the the highest silicon age technology, the okay. highest stone age technology of its era, if you like. Yeah. And at the end of that sort of Neolithic, as we dispersed around the world, um, is the time when we're now looking at domestication of wild plant species mm. and wild animals to make mm. the crops and the livestock which we developed uh, agriculture with, and then you know mm-hmm. sort of that led to greater and greater population densities and, and cities and, and civilization. So it's mm-hmm. you know there's, there's there's often no hard line or threshold from yeah. one period to the next, but mm-hmm. there's sort of a smooth mm-hmm. transition, which of course doesn't happen at the same time in different places around the world either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, curious. I mean, you mentioned the book, so just before this time though, is is the di- different uh, hominins as we mentioned, you know, the Ramadas, Astropithecus. Um, my personal favorite, just because of how interesting it is, is Erectus, because <laughs> Erectus is the one that got up and walked out of Africa, right? And they were one of the one of the first species to 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 human species or quasi-human species to, as far as we know, to 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 do that. Um, wh- why why do you think it, these precursors and and different uh, hominids? Why aren't they around anymore? Why weren't they able to survive? I mean, I don't think there's anything special about Homo sapiens necessarily. Obviously, people are going to say our intelligence and language and you know ability to make tools, but we weren't the only ones to make tools. No. Maybe, we, maybe we make them better or you know more advanced. But I guess what is it that I, I always find it interesting to you know, like I was thinking, like there's different types of uh, species of different animals, species of birds and insects and even other mammals, it's like, well, we're the only one that we interact with. It would be so interesting in a modern society to interact with other species of humans, if you will. 
I guess what is it about all of these 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 uh, hominids that didn't uh, didn't quite make it? Why 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 do you think that is? Yeah, Homo Homo erectus made it as far as um, East Asia in its dispersal around the world out of Africa. Um, but what was special? What we were the first in as our branch of humanity, of Homo sapiens, is we were the first human species to ever make it to the Americas. We were able to migrate across the Bering Land Bridge during the most recent ice age. And we reached into the Americas where no other human species had ever reached. We were you know, treading where no human had ever been before. But in terms of why it seems to be, the, well, why it is the case that our branch of the hominins, Homo sapiens, survived, we are the, we are the sole survivors of this huge branching evolutionary tree. As you said, there were other, uh, other hominins that used fire, there are other hominins that uh, used clothes, Neanderthals, you know, wore clothes to help them stay warm in a Ice Age Europe. Um, other hominins used tools. And it doesn't seem to be the case that we, um, for in the example of the Neanderthals in Europe, when we migrated in there as we were dispersing out of Africa, it doesn't seem that we annihilated or exterminated them. It doesn't seem to have been a kind of a violent conquest or um, displacement. And there's a lot of evidence of interbreeding between human and Neanderthal populations. And if anyone's ever done, you know, one of these sort of home genetic tests like 23andMe, they will tell you what percentage of Neanderthal DNA or other hominid DNA you have. And you know, there's debates to be had over how accurate those sort of measurements are and the metrics are. But undeniably, um, large populations of humans living around the world today, not in Africa, have got uh, uh, genes in them or DNA sequences which are derived from our cousins, from, from Neanderthals. So we, we did a lot of interbreeding um, with these other hominin species we, as we encountered them. But nonetheless, we seem to prevail, whereas the others have fallen extinct. And it might be that we were not necessarily more intelligent, but maybe that we worked better together. We were more cooperative. We were better at teamwork um, as, 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 as Homo sapiens. Um, and maybe in the case of uh, Europe and, and Neanderthals, the idea that we'd invented the um, the sewing needle, we were able to make clothes or, or stitch furs together so they hugged, they fitted our bodies more closely and so mm. kept us warmer. Mm. Um, that, that is one hypothesis, one theory that's been put forward. These sort of things end up being quite hard to test uh, de decisively, comprehensively. But that's one of the ideas that's been put forward about why we might have outcompeted or fared better than the Neanderthals in Ice Age Europe when, when we dispersed in, is that we were slightly better with our technology and communication and working together as a mm. society. Yeah, that thing is is super interesting. I, I I remember I had a I talked to Jennifer Raff. She wrote a book called uh, Origins, I think, or Origin. I forget the name of it. It's mm. about the story of the Americas and how yeah. um, a lot of ideas. You kind of gets into the weeds of how did humans uh, walk across the the land straight and then. Almost, I think I remember this correctly. That at the time, this is you know, people keep playing with the the. We get new evidence, and we play. Was it seventeen thousand years ago? Was it twenty two thousand years ago? Was it twenty seven thousand years ago? People keep playing with this date somewhere in there. But um, that that the uh, that region, so the Bering Land Strait, is the the the, the, the uh, land kind of mass that was that connected. Um, so it's, it's the Bering Strait at the moment. Bering now Strait, that the sea me. levels have risen again. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it would have opened up the Bering Land Bridge. Um, yeah, yeah. The last 
in between like Russia and in Alaska, yeah. Northern yeah. Canada. Yeah. And um, that it, at the time, you know, thousands of years ago, it, it almost acted as like a, almost like a mini continent of sorts, uh, which is super interesting to think about. And there was like, you know, an ice wall somewhere in, in Northern Canada. And then people, you know, there, there was the idea of, you know, how did they get across it? Did they wait, you know, a thousand years? And then they came across yeah. down to the rest of the Americas later. Or alternatively, did some take boats and then they go across the coast? It's all these interesting yeah. ideas about yeah. how how people um, kind of disperse throughout the Americas. But interestingly, um, I thought I thought the one thing about this this part in your book was this emphasis you put on on the oceans. Um, about you talk about the Mediterranean Sea, you talk about North Seas, you talk about our five oceans. Mm. I guess we've been talking about uh, tectonic plates, we've been talking about land, but how much is uh, our oceans uh, currently and in the past super important for, also important for, uh, I guess, the planet, but really for how humans do or don't thrive in certain areas? Yeah, the, the seas and oceans, like, like very deliberately include a chapter in Origins about what is often left as a blank space on the world map. You know, we colour it in blue, and you don't really talk about the sort of landscape of, of, of the oceans themselves. They're just the bits which aren't land. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting story to be told about the seas and oceans, you know, as an entity themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, they're, they're, they have become and they've been used as, as highways of, of, of exploration and trade, they are an important source of nutrition and fishing for, for many cultures. But with the example of the Mediterranean, and again, this is one of the um, one of the examples that really stood out to me when I was researching writing origins. This is something that really stuck in my mind as, as being a fascinating uh, sort of detail about our own history. Is the Mediterranean as being this bubbling cauldron of loads of different cultures and societies and civilizations from the, from the Bronze Age. You know, right up until until today, and people are familiar with the Etruscans or the Phoenicians and the Minoans or the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans. When you think about it, almost all of those Mediterranean cultures were on the northern coastline of Mediterranean, not the southern coastline. And you can you can cross from north to south across the, the middle of the Mediterranean in a matter of days sailing. It's, it's very small, contained inland sea. And yet there's been this great dichotomy for thousands of years of human history. And to understand why that is, you sort of need to turn back the clocks on the, on the history of, of, of Earth and see where the Mediterranean itself came from. And it turns out that the Mediterranean today is no more than a mere puddle left behind from what was once a vast, great Ocean. An ocean is you know as big as the Atlantic is today in its heyday. And that ocean is the Tethys. Mm-hmm. And we've mentioned Pangaea, the, the supercontinent before. And Pangaea at its at its at its height and its largest extent was, you know, it's roughly a C-shaped continent. And in the cup of that C-shape was the Tethys Ocean. Mm. And as Pangaea then tore itself apart again with that ongoing process of plate tectonics and continental drift. Um, Africa and India started riding north again, back into Eurasia. And as they were, as they were doing so, they were effectively swallowing up and destroying the Tethys Ocean. The, the, the ocean floor was being subducted 
into the bowels of the earth and being destroyed in, in that process of plate subduction. And all that remains today of this Tethys Ocean is the Mediterranean, as, as Africa is still riding north and still destroying the Mediterranean you know, very slowly as, as it rides north with, with concentric drift. And so that collision of Africa to Eurasia crumbled up uh, the Alps, the sort of uh, Carpathian mountain range, the Caucasian mountain range. And so the northern coastline of the Mediterranean is this crumpled, rumpled up, hilly, mountainous landscape, which with the rising of the sea levels at the end of the last ice age, became a drowned landscape. It's full of tiny little archipelagos of islands and natural inlets and coves and bays and natural harbours. It is ideally set up for seafaring societies, being able to communicate and trade with each other. But because it is Africa that has been subducted beneath Europe and being destroyed, its coastline is very smooth and flat and boring. It is bereft of natural harbours for long, long stretches of that coastline. And so it is unaccommodating for seafaring societies. And so for thousands of years, that dichotomy of the northern Mediterranean coastline versus the southern Mediterranean coastline has been largely dictated again by these planetary processes, by, by things like plate tectonics. I, I, I really, I mean, again, I, I read a handful of things. And so I thought this was super important because you're absolutely right. We don't talk about sort of the, I mean, maybe I'm sure people do in their own field and, and in their own right, but we don't hear as much about how oceans have changed over over time uh, and the, the Tethys Ocean and what the Mediterranean looks like today based on what it was, you know, uh, for, for you know, millions of years ago. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and so I was, I was glad to, to see that you gave some some attention to it uh, in the book. Uh, it was, it was it's wonderful. kind of key choke points in the ocean as well. So people, I think, are familiar with, um, you know, sort of Eurasian history and mm -hmm. invaders horse people coming out of the steppes and the, the Mongolian invasion is, is a more recent example of this from, from the 13th mm -hmm. century. Mm -hmm. And they tend to invade into China or into Europe along basically highways on the land, mm -hmm. places where it is flat and wide and you can move very easily away from any you know, mountains or you know, big rivers. And we find a similar landscape in the ocean when you're navigating around by, by ship. And these are the straits um, where, where the water is very narrow, where it basically is, is canalized between land masses. And as you're crossing the Indian Ocean, for example, from sort of Africa across to Southeast Asia, you can either come through um, the Straits of Malacca um, or the Sunda Straits. And these have been hugely geopolitically important for hundreds upon hundreds of years, because if you can control those straits, you can control a lot of the trade and commerce that flows through them. But it also gives you a military advantage in terms of controlling whose fleets or whose ships um, can can move around the world's oceans and you know project their power around the world. Yeah, well, then, it, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think that's that's what's so interesting is that once you have you know with with uh, exploration and then colonization things like that, then all of these things become critical for you know power structures and, and things like that. Um, so let's talk about materials a little bit. You spend a lot of time talking about different types of materials at different points. Uh, you talk about limestone, I believe, for the pyramids, wood and clay for a lot of Mesopotamian civilizations, which we mentioned, marble, chalk, flint, granite, all of these different types of materials. How is all of this um, 
the idea of okay, we can build tools, but then we can use materials in our environment. But more critically, how how do um, the materials in particular places kind of invoke or influence heavily the types of civilizations that are being mm. expounded upon? I thought that was again. You could talk about materials and stuff like that, but the way you talked about in the book of like how this was instructive for a particular civilization and how that was impactful, I thought was a, a kind of a, a kind of a critical takeaway there because like yeah, obviously it's going to look a little bit different in Egypt than it does in China, right? There's different yeah, yeah. different parts, and so I guess still the same theme. There's an environment where people are living. But using different materials based on their environment is going to impact their kind of culture and, and impact societies and things like that. So chat about it in that way, I guess, of, of the impact it has. Mm. Yeah, I start this chapter of Origins with a slightly playful question of who built the pyramids, who built the Egyptian mm-hmm. pyramids. Mm-hmm. And your immediate answer might be, well, it was the pharaohs. <laughs> and, and you would be absolutely right, of course. But that's only the sort of most proximate answer. Because a deeper question might be, well, where did that material um, that limestone that the Egyptians dug up from the earth, dug up from the ground, chiseled into you know nice smooth blocks, and then piled blocks on top of each other to make the pyramid shape. Mm. Because that li- limestone turns out to be quite a special kind of rock, and it's it's called oolitic limestone. It's created by life. It's created by biology ultimately, and this comes from the sea floor um, of oceans like the Tethys that we were talking about earlier. And if you ever get the opportunity to go to Egypt and get up nice and close to some of those um, pyramids, particularly the Great Pyramids in in Giza, on the Giza Plain, Mm -hmm. you'll see there's little disc-shaped, effectively fossils in that limestone. And those are the the remains, those are the shells of the life that was creating, involved in that process and creating that limestone. So the Egyptians had access to a lot of uh, limestone for digging up underground and then piling up above the ground to make their their monuments, their edifices. A bit further north, process uh, of plate tectonics and, you know, the, the, the compression and the heating of limestone deepen the bowels of the earth before it then becomes re-exposed on the surface, created marble. So the cultures, you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome are known for their beautiful creamy white marble statues and marble edifices and monuments um, so they've used their own natural local building materials. Again, if we look at Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, it's basically the land of mud. The only natural resource they had to build their cities out of and, and their big religious monuments was, was basically river mud. And they, they baked them into adobe bricks. They, they weren't particularly strong. They weren't particularly durable. They haven't survived particularly well in the way that stone edifices have stood the test of time. So they they were basically making do with what they had in their local environment. And they had to import um, cedar and then wood from from elsewhere, as did Egypt. They didn't have much growing um, naturally. Whereas if you look at somewhere like uh, Britain, the United Kingdom, where I'm from, um, we've got quite a varied uh, geology across the British Isles. Mm -hmm. You can look at a geological map and they'll often be colour-coded and it's like this (laughs) almost psychedelic, trippy, rainbow splurge of lots of different color-coded geological ages of the rocks beneath our feet because the British Isles have had quite a complex geological history. And so if you were to were to blindfold a geologist, 
parachute them out the back of a plane somewhere in the British Isles, they'd have a pretty good idea about where they've landed just by looking at the buildings around them as that way of expressing or understanding what is in the rocks beneath their feet, because people tend to use rocks from nearby rather than transporting you know, heavy rocks long, long distances um, to, to build things with. So, you know, this, this is things like, um, you know, granite type rocks up in, up in Scotland, up in Aberdeen, um, places like in the Cotswolds in, in, in England, where there isn't much uh, natural stone, people tend to use um, uh, what's in daubles. They, they basically built uh, mud walls and then used thatch on the roofs because there weren't things like slate nearby that they could put on their roofs. So that sort of quintessential English sort of Tudor house where you've got the, the, the sort of black timber frames and the white plaster and then the quaint, pretty thatch roof, again, is basically just an expression of the paucity of local stone to build with that they, they may do with what they they could find so i love again this was this is one of my favorite chapters when i was researching writing origins was how in the particular instance of stone or rock that we could build with how that dictated things like styles of what was available for different cultures and civilizations whether it was ancient greece or the ancient samaria or, or egypt and then a later chapter talks about uh, things like metal, which yeah. we, we we worked out how to extract metal, how to get metal out of rocks by smelting them to make tools and weapons and lots of utensils out of them. You know, that's a, a whole other story mm. of our technological progress. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it is super fascinating how we, we keep building off of things. I guess mm. the, the the one question before we, we get to the, the latest book is um, is obviously about the age of exploration. Uh, obviously, there's colonization, there's slavery, there's imperialism. Mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of ugly, dark chapters, which which you know many people have written about and talked about, and yeah. I've, I've done a little bit here too on on the, the podcast. But I guess it, what what was it? I guess the question I have here was there was so many at the time empires that just did this in a very kind of uh what's the word i want to use i guess prolific is one way to say it i'm i'm mm. I, I, I want to be mindful of you know there's there's definitely some good parts there's definitely some ugly parts but the portuguese did this the dutch did this the british did this yeah um obviously we, we mentioned uh the mongols earlier in time they they had done this and they had done it very differently and there, there are many other other empires but those are the when we talk about the 15th and 16th centuries we, it's usually the portuguese the dutch the british yeah um what was driving, I guess, I mean, some of it was, I guess, looking for gold in other places and things like that. I would imagine some of it is power to, you know, who, who positioned more uh, in different parts of the world or, or, but was, was some of it also just discovery of there's a new world or, you know, there's other parts of um, the world we don't know, or I guess, what was it that this time, all of this time, uh, that was was so captivating for for humans, um, and also point you make here is uh, was about the wind cycles, which I thought was interesting. You talked about kind of in the ocean and how those are big kind of major highways, and you could talk about wind here as well if you want. But uh, yeah, what was it about this time that made it so pro prolific? Yeah, so the from the early from the 13th century, mm -hmm. the Mongols came to establish the greatest land empire the world had ever seen. And they were peoples that came out of the steppes, which is a particular climactic, a particularly ecological zone 
in the centre of Eurasia. And, and I, I talk, there's a chapter about the steppes and the ecological zone and why the Great Wall of China isn't so much a defensive barrier to keep out the barbarians. When you think about it in fundamental terms, the Great Wall of China follows along uh, a climactic boundary. It's keeping out steppes people where it's dry and you, there's not enough rainfall to grow crops to keep them out from the uh, wetter regions to the south in China, where you had agrarian civilizations with cities um, based on growing cereal crops, so things like rice. And then from the 15th and 16th centuries and onwards, as you say, we see a new kind of empire starting to emerge, which are basically maritime empires, global spanning maritime empires, um, funded by, by trade and plunder and exploitation. But in the chapter I explore in the book about the global wind machine, this beginning of the age of sail or the age of exploration or the age of discovery from a European point of view was when navigators, mariners, first the, the Portuguese and Spanish, first started to spot patterns in the direction the prevailing winds were blowing in different parts of the world and the ocean currents they blew around and realising they could exploit those patterns to knit together the continents in ways that had never before been seen with huge uh, trade routes that, that bridged across entire oceans, like you know, knitting together continents across the Pacific, across the greatest ocean on the planet. And this all comes down to atmospheric circulation. So we've talked a lot about plate tectonics and the very slow movement of the Earth beneath our feet. There is a much faster churning of the atmosphere high above our heads, which in the whole is, is invisible to us. But in very simple terms, around the equator, where it's very sunny, it's very warm, that warm air rises, rolls over through high altitude, cools down, and then sinks back down to the surface of the Earth at about 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south. And then to complete that great circulation current high above our heads, the atmosphere has to get back towards the equator by moving over the surface of the Earth. And the atmosphere moving over the surface of the Earth is just what we call the winds. And the only other important detail is that while the atmosphere is undergoing these huge vertical convection currents, the entire planet is rotating beneath its own atmosphere. And that creates uh, the Coriolis effect. So either side of the equator, you have a wide band of winds that always, always blow towards the west. Those are the trade winds. And then outside, towards the poles, outside that band of atmospheric circulation, you have a different circulation system, which creates prevailing winds that always, always blow in the opposite direction. Those are the westerlies. So navigators realize if you want to cross the entire ocean from one continent to another and then come back again to, to complete a trade route, you simply move your ship back and forth between these huge conveyor belts of prevailing winds that are wrapped around the planet. And we, the, the Portuguese found a route to India and the Spice Islands. The Spanish found their way across the North Atlantic with Columbus first, of course, and then established in the ocean on the far side of this new world, which they called the Peaceful Ocean, the Pacific. The Spanish established the longest trade route in the history of sail, which was the Spanish Manila Galleon route, which linked uh, China and the Californian coast and then down to Mexico, where they had lots of, of silver mines. But perhaps the um, trade system, which had the, the, the greatest significance in the, in the subsequent playing out of human history, was the Atlantic Trade Triangle, which was like an economic cog 
sat right across the North Atlantic, being blown round and round by atmospheric circulation and generating huge profits for its masters, the people that controlled that trade. And one of the, the legs of that three-part triangular trade was the um, Mid-Atlantic Passage where slaves were taken from Africa and transported to the colonies in North and South America and forced to work on, on, the, on the plantations there. So a lot of the, of the entire story of the age of sale, of the age of discovery, the age of exploration, and then empire building was dominated, was dictated by something as simple as which way does the wind blow? How do I get from A to B? What is the atmospheric circulation? Because that dictates where you establish your trade routes. Yeah. That dictates where you have to build a port to resupply your ships before a long transoceanic crossing. That dictates where you build your fortresses mm. to protect that valuable trade. Mm. That uh, dictated where cities started building up. And so the modern world we live in today has still got this distinctive fingerprint from the age of sail hundreds mm. of years ago mm. because it was so influential in that process of development and an empire building, as, mm. as, I, as I was saying. It's, just, it's interesting that again I found it very fascinating how how you 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 know you're talking about something in the book as is something as basic as wind and I think it's the way in which you talk about it, which was very very interesting at least for me I'm not a big uh I'm not a big ocean kind of guy and and mm. uh I love I love the mountains I love land and it's interesting how it was it was I I, I think Probably my favorite chapters in the book were about wind and ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because I just didn't know as much Maybe about it. Maybe it's familiar to you. you knew yeah, less, less yeah, it. yeah. It was, it was it was great. I really really enjoyed it. I want to um I want to get to the newest book, Being yeah. Human: uh, How Our Biology Shaped World History. Um, and, you know, so you start you start the book. I mean, it's, it's a good starting point, I guess. Is is that basically, basically, or actually. Humans, we are <clears throat> we are social, right? We're social yeah. social creatures. Um, that's not all of us necessarily, but it's a big, big, big part of us. I guess the the one thing where you start out with is is um is how we are a cooperative species with each other. So you talk about a lot of different things here. Um but you talk about cooperation. You talk about altruism. Yeah. Um, curious about your thoughts on interdependence. You talk about reciprocal uh, altruism. All of these different concepts, which uh, many folks have been um, thinking about and writing about as well. I guess from from your perspective, what is it about those things that makes we're not the only species that's cooperative or has some reciprocity? Um, we, I think the way we do it is probably pretty unique than others, but, but not, and not entirely. I mean, all species cooperate in different ways, um, or, or many species, I should say, but what is it, I guess, about this starting point for you that was important to just kind of set the tone of, of how we are as, as humans and, and what our, what our biology is doing and all of these, these kinds of things for, for interacting with others. Yeah. Being Human is, is the third in this sort of loose triptych, loose trilogy of books. Um, and, you know, any of them can be read independently of the others. You can read them out of order. You can read one, but not the others. They all make perfect sense. But they're linked, at least, in sort of the themes that, mm -hmm. that I try to explore. Like, why is the world we live in today the way it is? And how have we got here through, through the grand scale of, of human history? And the first chapter of Being Human um, 
I take a step as far back as I can and try to explore what is it about human nature, about the human condition that has enabled us to build civilization and societies in the first place? Why are we so good at living together in large populations, largely peaceably, you know, far more than our chimpanzees, which, which we are closely related to? Why are we so good at cooperating together for shared ventures like building big irrigation projects that everyone can, can eat, eat more food or um, society and civilization itself is basically a great big shared venture with everyone on the whole pulling in the same direction towards a you know, sort of a common good. What is it about humans that, that seems to make us so intrinsically good at cooperating with each other and specifically people that we're not related to? Right. So we see, we see a lot of altruism in the natural world um, between animals which are related to each other. And this kind of makes sense in terms of the genetics and, and the evolution. but fitness and you know so darwinism isn't just about me maximizing my own survival and my own reproductive output to have as many children as possible because if i can help my brothers or sisters to have children of their own i'm still genetically related to their children so right. copies of my genes which are likely to be in my brothers and sisters and their children um i'm, I'm it's, it's called kin selection i'm sort of helping out copies of my genes indirectly in that same way. And we see a lot of kin selection in the animal world. What we see less of, what seems to be more special about humans is helping people who aren't related to us and specifically strangers, people who are never likely to bump into or counter again. And this is particularly true in large societies and populations of cities where we're largely living around people we don't know. And this story about our cooperation and, and altruistic virtues of humanity um, is explored in a wonderful book by Nicola Rahani, who I know that you've you've interviewed in the past yourself, called yeah, The great. Social Instinct. Mm -hmm. And my first chapter of being human draws upon the social instinct. And I, you know, I quote Nicola in some of the, the beautiful mm -hmm. phrases that she's used in, in that book. Yeah. Is about um, why is it that humans help strangers? We help each other out. And the theory behind this is called um, indirect reciprocation. In that if I help um, so let's say person A helps person B. Person A doesn't necessarily have to receive help from person B or altruism person B. The person B helps person C, who then helps D, who helps E. It's a sort of pay it forward mm -hmm. type approach that that altruism, that cooperation, those favors get passed around society as a whole. So everyone ends up benefiting if people are just generally helpful or cooperative with each other. Just as long as you can solve the problem of cheats or freeloaders who would receive help from other people, but then really selfish and not pass that favor on because they're benefiting from everyone else, but not paying any of the costs. And so what seems to be true with a, a huge amount of human psychology is we have these inbuilt mechanisms that evolution has, has given us to help make indirect reciprocation work is ways of basically being, being very attuned, attuned to picking up on cheats and freeloaders and punishing them trying to keep freeloaders in check in a society so that this whole shared venture doesn't end up collapsing mm. under effectively the parasites of, of, of freeloaders um, and, and cheats. And, and it's that key development in, in, our, in our evolutionary history that set us up in the long term to be able to build big societies which led into civilizations and, and cities. Yeah, I think it's it's important. I mean, obviously, we, we talk about... Um, many of the, the aspects of humanity that are 
I mean, just terrible. I mean, we, we, we hurt other things and we hurt each other and we're aggressive and, you know, all these, all these things. And that, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on, on those aspects of who we are as people. And we, we, and how, you know, we're destructive or you know, yeah. things like that. And all that's true. It's, it's not untrue necessarily, but it's been nice um, that many folks. So, so yeah, Nicola, she's great. Uh, she, she's, she's done a lot of research on this and, and written a fabulous book, social, social instinct. Mm. And um, Michael McCullough, he wrote a book. Um, oh, I'm blanking on that. Um, I'm blanking on the name. Something about kindness, I think. Ah, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, but the Michael, kindness paradox, maybe. Something. It's something. I, ah, I'm forgetting the name. Ah, I'll 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 put it in the the, the you introduction. You can get it in the edits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll put it in the introduction. Um, but he wrote a good book on this. Uh, there's a few others that that yeah. uh, that are out there as well. They've been they've been doing this, and and so it's really nice to see that you, you yourself is also discussing the, you know, the power of of compassion. Because yes, while we are we do terrible things to the planet and other animals and to each other, and we have war and torture and you know destruction and all these horrible things. You can't. What other people have picked up on is you cannot successfully advance a species as much as we have without cooperating with other people it's 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 it would be very difficult to do that in, in mass to do that in a, in a, in a very big yeah, way you can yeah. maybe do that in small bands or groups or things like that but um you need you need you need cooperation but you need cooperation at a at a at a at a big scale and i think we we have done that and again there's darker sides to cooperation. Towards the end of the book, uh, Nicola talks about the darker sides. We can cooperate to, to, to hurt other people. Um, you well, know, in or, a sense, war is one great big cooperation of a society, right? Right, right, right. Members of another society, right, 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 right. right. So, so there are darker sides to cooperation. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think we, we, I think it is a, it's a good thing for for most things. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think anyone would argue that humanity is inherently or perfectly virtuous we we have dark sides yeah. but on the whole as an animal species and compared to some of our closest living relatives within the primates yeah. we are notably astonishingly peaceful we, we don't mm -hmm. have um or a lot of uh sort of hunter-gatherer societies more egalitarian societies don't have that sort of alpha male hierarchical structure um, that you find in chimpanzee troop for example and and you know it's a very complicated story that i go into in the book mm -hmm. But um, civilization and the opportunity to start amassing wealth and resources is something that allowed uh, social hierarchy to start creeping back into mm. human societies, into, 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 mm. um, in, into the way that we live. And perhaps the ultimate expression of that is things like monarchy and the, the, the supreme sovereign leadership of a group of people by effectively an, an inherited post. Mm -hmm. by, by you know the, the supremacy of one particular family above all other families in that society mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 um so let's talk a little bit about uh relationships i guess uh, kind of uh, from from a particular angle so uh, pair bonding is is huge for humans we're not the only ones that do it but uh it's a pretty big deal for us uh you talk about the role of oxytocin uh and curious also about the role of kind of i guess uh, attachment how we have form attachments with primary caregivers just just talk about for us we have again i think if you have a brain that's evolved for abstraction and for language i think that has a downstream effect of the i guess the detail of of how we 
we interact and we have certain pair bonds um, that might be different than how birds do it or or chimpanzees or mm. things like that. I mean, they do it in their way, and so we don't know. I'm not I'm not trying to make a, a one's better than the other, but yeah. I think with different, um, if you're working with a different set of uh, ingredients, well, it's just it's going to look a little bit different. And so, how pair bonding for humans is it looks different than it does for other animals uh, uh, on the planet. So, anyways, what are your what are your um, thoughts on how important parent bonding has been for humans? Yeah, the story here is that something very interesting happened in human evolution, that we were simultaneously becoming more intelligent, evolving to be brainier, and therefore having bigger heads, bigger skulls. And around the same time, we're evolving to be bipedal, to, to walk upright. Yep. And this started creating a fundamental conflict in the direction that evolution, the adaptation of the human body was being pulled in. Because uh, every time a human is born, every time you give birth to a child, you're effectively trying to pass the baby's skull, their head and their brain, through mm -hmm. the hoop of the birth canal, through a hole in the pelvis. And it's the pelvis that is supporting the legs and the, and, you know, sort of the infrastructure we use for walking around. So we'd reached a sort of crunch point where we couldn't become brainier, become more intelligent, because effectively your skull will get stuck in the birth canal of your mother um, right. who's evolved to walk upright. Um, and that would be hugely problematic. And so the solution evolution found is that in uh, primate species, but specifically in, in humans, we have this long period of development and further brain development after the moment of birth. We are really useless as babies. So something like a gazelle can be up on its feet and walking alongside its mother and you know, sort of running around and sort of taking itself out of danger within minutes or certainly hours of being born. But a baby, human baby, for years and years is being carried around and is being breastfed and is being nurtured and is being supported. Um, and even when it's you know, so when when a human baby is weaned, it still can't feed itself for several years. It needs that sort of family and a wider society of, of relatives and people around it to, to keep it alive. So unlike in other animals. When um, normally that the mother, but some, in some animal species, the father can single-handedly raise offspring. In humans, it became too burdensome, on the whole, for a single parent to raise children, and it required both. It required biparental investment to raise a human child. And then evolution needed to solve another problem: of, well, how do you keep those two parents together for just long enough that a baby, um, you know, can start standing on its own two feet in life? So this was the idea of pair bonding, of this hormonal attachment between the mother and father to keep them in that relationship through the vulnerable first years of that baby's life. And this is mediated by the hormone of oxytocin. And many other, many bird species also uh, will pair bond, if not for life, but then at least for a particular season for their chicks to, to, to you know, grow up and, and fly off on, on their own lives. So oxytocin is this sort of um, emotional bonding hormone in the human brain, which then also became co-opted into mediating other emotional attachments that humans developed, such as uh, friendship. And it seems we also have an oxytocin-mediated bond to pets. So we've extended even this pair bonding hormone, not just from mother to child, but between mother and father or between friends but to members of other species, such as the wolves who domesticated into dogs. And in that sense, oxytocin is this sort of neurochemical that binds humans together, binds human societies 
together. And so with the invention of pair bonding and biparental investment in children also became the evolution and invention of the human family, in a sense, of you know, having mother and father and also the wider family of relatives helping to raise the vulnerable children um, within your society. Yeah. Uh, before, before before we get to, to family, because that's a, that's a big piece too here, is, again, d- there's different uh, animals that have a family, of, of course, I guess you could say it that way. But um, I, it, again, it just looks a little bit different for humans. Talk about with with um, with 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 pair bonding. It's interesting because in our history, we 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 have this interesting periods. I've talked about it at different points on the podcast too. But we we were polygynous three hundred thousand years ago. Then we go to monogamous ten thousand years ago, and then polygynous again two thousand years ago. And, and I think now we're back to monogamous uh, mo- mostly for most humans around the planet. Um, and of course, there's the impact of you know the spread of religion and things like that at different points. I mean, I think uh, Joe Henrik has talked about this, and you know others. But what what do you make about humans and how we have um, yeah. romantic relationships? Uh, more so of this evolutionary story of being polygynous, monogamous, and then back and forth and back and forth. What what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, it, it, it's a complicated story. It's one you don't want to oversimplify. Yeah. But in broad brushstrokes, it seems that on the whole, hunter-gatherer societies, which is which is you know, thought to be our ancestral condition mm-hmm. um, before the development of agriculture and, and you know, settling into, into civilizations, societies were largely egalitarian. Everyone had access to roughly the same amount of resources, which is what they could gather or hunt themselves from the local environment. And so um, monogamy was the norm. One man would have a relationship with one woman and they would raise children together. And maybe that relationship would end and you would partner up with someone else. But it was, it was largely monogamous, you know, one, one man and one woman in a, in a partnership at a time. The, the sort of simplified story is that with the development of agriculture and a sedentary lifestyle, settling down into agricultural villages and then towns, then cities, people could amass resources. You didn't have to carry all of your possessions around with you as you roamed across the landscape as a hunter-gatherer, you could start um, building up uh, repositories of resources. And then therefore came about this concept of wealth. Some people more wealthy than others, they had access to more resources. They could dominate um, the source of wealth if that was agricultural and dominate, for example, the system of canals and when the harvest was brought in. And with that disparity in wealth comes about the possibility of one man being able to support several women, several wives, and, and supporting the children he has with all of them. So, again, that this uh, opportunity for polygamy came about. The world we live in, at least the developed Western world, is one of monogamy. Monogamy, sorry, it's it's culturally expected, it's culturally prescribed, it's legally. Um, legally defined in, in you know, many nations around the world as well now. But it seems that was a sort of weird historical quirk that came out of ancient Greece and then ancient Rome to enforce, culture enforce, and then legally start enforcing uh, monogamy in a what could have been a polygamous society. And out of ancient Rome became medieval Europe. And then as we've spoken already, 
the European powers on the empire and, you know, um, schemes of, of conquest and empire building around the world, that scheme of monogamy was exported around the world and then forced upon um, populations around the planet. So there's this really interesting story about what is fundamentally a mating strategy, whether it's one man and one woman, or one man and several women, or in several cases I talk about, there are examples, really interesting examples of polyandry, which is one woman partnered with several men for mm-hmm. um, often ecological reasons, it seems, to, it seems to come down to. And what effect that then has on the basic biology of reproduction. And for example, in ruling families, the reliability with which you can produce an heir to your crown. Mm. So one of the examples I look at in this chapter in Origins is in Europe. And for example, Henry VIII in England, mm-hmm. um, basically suffering this, this anxiety in trying to produce an heir to his crown, trying to produce an heir and a spare, not just one son, but ideally you want two sons in a system of primogeniture who can assume your kingship, take your crown on from you, inherit it. And if the, the elder son dies, you want basically a backup. So you don't have um, a challenge to the crown or a succession crisis um, on, on your death. And that was contrasted against the Ottoman Empire uh, at the same time as Henry VIII, which lived in a cultural norm of polygamy. And there was no problem whatsoever with reliably producing heirs uh, for the sultan, because he had a whole harem of, of women with whom he was able to reproduce and, and, and produce potential heirs the crown. So again, it, it's one of these things in the book that kind of maybe feels obvious in retrospect, mm. but I think is a really interesting link from historical trends, historical themes in different cultures around the world and how people have chosen to do things differently. In this case, reproduction and producing an heir, and in the case of ruling families, but how that fundamentally comes back down. If you trace that chain of cause and effect, that, that chain of links comes down to something fundamental about human biology which is pairing up and producing and reproducing, producing children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's, I actually like the, the way you explain it. It's, it's, it's very, it's very, very good. It makes, makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's people I think you're right. Ken kind of oversimplify it, but I think it, the way you explain it makes a lot of sense in context of, of, of where things yeah. were at. Um, so yeah, so you, so you mentioned kind of the evolutionary role of family, the hierarchy, socialization come, uh, into play here so we can talk about that and then uh, yeah kind of just carry on with this idea of you know how we get royal families and how they are uh i, I mean essentially antiquated at this point but they still kind of hang around in modern society and don't really do anything um, well they have sort of ceremonial roles don't you? So right, in right 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 we have the coronation of our new king of king charles iii right right and uh the street i live in in west london had a slightly belated coronation street party and we put up lots of bunting between the houses and sat down on a long trestle table in the middle of our street which we blocked off to stop the cars coming down and had you know coronation chicken and scones and, and jam and cream and a, a typically uh english thing mm-hmm. and you're right nowadays monarchy in, in most societies is is almost an acronym. It's something that mm-hmm. sticks around because it has had historical significance. Yeah. But in the past, um, if you'll excuse the pun, um, monarchies reigned supreme. They, they yeah. were the predominant yeah. way uh-huh. that populations and societies were were ruled, and, and how a leader was chosen was, on the whole, who was the um, son of the current ruler in, in a system of, of primogeniture. 
What's interesting as well is how these ruling families have effectively regulated, again, their own fundamental human biology to try to ensure that um, secure transference of power from their generation into the next generation and trying to consolidate that power by marrying into other uh, predominant, you know, uh, powerful ruling families. And a lot of this was happening across, you know, again, sort of medieval and early modern periods of European history, where ruling families, in different countries would, would marry each other um, to, you know, often to try to ensure peace so that, that, that those two countries don't, don't end up facing each other across the battlefield, but also to try to spread their own dominion and their own influence. And one of the stories I talk about in Being Human was about the Habsburgs. Mm-hmm. And I described them as being the sort of ultimate royal family in this period of history in playing the Game of Thrones. And they were exquisitely good mm-hmm. at growing their dominion, growing their, their kingdom, growing large and larger territories over which they ruled by tactically having their sons and daughters marry into other royal families. But the biological upshot of this with the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs yeah. was effectively the biology came back to bite them. Yeah. But by constantly remarrying into the same small subset of royal families who end up becoming your own relatives, you have you know uncles and, and nieces marrying each other, you have cousins marrying each other, you're drawing from a, a smaller and smaller genetic pool. Mm-hmm. And biologically what happens is you start encountering problems of recessive genes, recessive mm-hmm. alleles. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Spanish Habsburgs, their last king, um, Charles, it's not entirely clear, but he seems to have been biologically incapable of, of reproducing. He never successfully had a child. He had no heir to his crown. And the entire Spanish Habsburg line effectively played the Game of Thrones so well, and one could argue therefore so badly, that they um, married themselves into extinction. That they, that they had not played that biological game well enough. Um, and the Spanish Habsburg ended up uh, falling into, into extinction, and their huge domain was then was then divided. Yeah, it's, it's it's that 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 whole story is of the Habsburgs is 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 truly remarkable in 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 many ways. This is very interesting. Um, <laughs> I find it find it very interesting. I think I think it's the same, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, with um, what is it officially? Uh, is it the Windsors? Is that is that what they're called? The the the, 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 the ruling family in uh in in Britain. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, our, uh, our royals are the Windsors. Yeah, yeah. They they which, also which they only changed after the um the war, and they realized having a German sounding surname was not politic <laughs> <laughs> when they were at war at that but time. They, they, right. They they also do or have done some type of intermarrying as well, but not as closely. Is is that true as well or no? I, I can't recall. So, I mean, oh. all, all of the major royal families have been intermarrying um, with each other. There's mm. another interesting story I talk about in Being Human about a particular mutation. So this was a single spelling mistake in the DNA, a single mutation mm. in Queen Victoria, mm. which seems to have risen spontaneously. So when she was conceived, when her father's sperm met her mother's egg, it seems at that moment um, a single mutation arose which caused a genetic condition we now call haemophilia, which because of the system of Queen Victoria trying to marry her children across the royal families of of Europe, 
trying to ensure that there would never again be a huge European war. You know, since we'd seen the days of Napoleon, for example, um, she tried to marry her children widely across um, European monarchies and therefore very effectively spread that haemophilia genetic condition widely across Europe. Mm. It was particularly problematic in Spain, which I talk about uh, in the book, in, in Being Human, but also in the uh, Russian royal family, in the Romanovs, where their heir, their son, their, the, um, the, the, the Tsar-to-be, um, suffered very badly from haemophilia, was a very poor, sickly child. Mm. And it came to a uh, sort of a mystic who claimed to be able to heal this, this heir, who uh, was Rasputin, who got himself, um, you know, sort of wheedled his way in, into the into the royal family, particularly with the Tsarina um, at the time. And indirectly, that whole story led into the erosion of, of the Russian people's confidence and faith in the royal family and the growing anti-monarchist movement, which through other causes, I would never claim there was a single mutation that <laughs> solely and directly led to the, royal, to the Russian Revolution, but it was it was part of the mix. It was, it was a clear influence was the influence that Rasputin was able to gain for himself through haemophilia of the child and therefore through this single genetic mutation 100 years previously um, in, in the genetics of Queen Victoria. It's so wild. It's so wild. It feels like another time ago. If, <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's, there's so much continuity be, between, between humans. So a few, a few uh, last things here. Obviously, you know, big topics. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic book. I, I, really, I really enjoyed uh, being human, um, but there's a there's a few things you touch on which I think are important to kind of to mention mm -hmm. here. You talk about disease um, and how how disease what that's looked like for humans, um, for each other, and for for even for other animals. Um, I don't know if you read it. It's a uh, it came out uh, two years ago, now, I think. Um, the book called Plagues Upon the Earth by uh, historian Kyle Harper. Um, I believe that's through Princeton. I can't remember, but anyways. Um, Kyle's great. We he, he came on. We talked about it. Yeah. Big book, really big book, and it's a, it's the history of yeah. It's the uh, it's the history of plagues of disease uh, yeah. uh, on the earth. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable book. Um, and I thought about that when I was reading your chapter about it as well. About you, you do a nice thing in talking about differences between endemic diseases and epidemic yeah. uh, diseases. Very, very, very uh, fascinating. So maybe just you can talk about that impact that that's had on humans. Obviously, big, big impact. Um, domestication of animals again there's a lot of bonuses to that but there's also a lot of downsides to that fecal oral transmission diseases etc mm. and then um and then also about war war has also been another big thing that has contributed to demographic changes so you just kind of loosely hit those <laughs> they're big topics yeah, so but uh that, that just was three chapters in the book yeah, right the three <laughs> chapters right here go go three minutes go um, no. <laughs> yeah so there's, there's, there's another really great book that's just come out called um pathogenesis by jonathan kennedy I, i've seen and this i, I read it... and blurred that book but hadn't yeah. read didn't have the opportunity to read it until after i'd finished my two chapters and in, in being human but it, it looks good really it looks book. great it, it is a really good read it's, it's a cracking read so he takes a whole book and, and as you said, I, I reference in, in the back of being human um, a handful of books that all look at this similar idea. It's quite a common theme within historical investigation mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. see how some of the planet's smallest organisms can end up having the biggest effects, yeah. i.e. Um, diseases and microbes that can affect the human body. And what I try to do in being human is tease apart. And it's, it's, a, it's a slightly arbitrary distinction, but I think it's still useful to bear in mind the difference in effects between an endemic disease 
which can bobble away sort of in the background of the population, mostly affecting children who would survive that and then have a degree of uh, resistance in the adult life mm-hmm. versus something like a epidemic or a very fast moving plague that suddenly breaks into a new population and suddenly kills uh, a large fraction. So something like the Black Death or bubonic plague would be the you know, sort of archetypal example of, of an epidemic in human history and the profound effects that can have on, on the subsequent playing out of events. Mm. So I look at both endemic diseases and epidemic diseases. Um, I look at uh, the bubonic plague and the argument as to how that huge transformative shift in society, once you've removed a lot of the population and i.e. a lot of the labour force, um, was an influence on the loosening of the social constraints of the feudal system in, in Northern Europe and Britain at the time that helped hasten the end of the feudal system and entry into more commercial, mercantile uh, type social structure. And some examples I look at in endemic disease are, for example, uh, with tropical diseases that made it across to the Americas, uh, mostly with the slave trade. Um, So this was after uh, contact was first made between the New World and the the Old World. And diseases, tropical diseases from Africa, like yellow fever and malaria, were were able to make it across and the effects they had um, on the Americas. And one example was called the Darien Scheme, which was Scotland's own colonial effort. They, they looked at their neighbours to the south of the, the English, uh, the wealth they were making from international trade, maritime trade, and they basically wanted a piece of that, of that mercantile, merchant pie. And they tried to establish a colony, which they called um, New Scotland, based, based out of New Edinburgh in Panama. And by this time, endemic diseases like malaria and yellow fever had established themselves in, in that region and ended up uh, being hugely problematic for the survival and success of that Scottish colony, the Darling Scheme. So eventually it collapsed and all of the investments that had been raised back home in Scotland effectively evaporated and it, it never came back because the colony failed. And that was one of the um, key drivers to the political union of England and Scotland. And again, I would never claim it was the only cause. There's a lot going on. History is is complex and mixed and and muddy, but it was one of the key factors, one of the defining features behind um, the union of of the United Kingdom, of of Scotland and uh, England being politically unified was was a, a consequence of tropical disease on the other side of the world. It's it's so interesting how these things are, are are can start super small and then they can spread. I mean, obviously, you know, we just had a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, people will be mindful of this. That is, I mean, it's, it's wild how something like that can just literally halt big, 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 big systems and and nation states and all this stuff. And it's it's it's, it's quite wild. Um, yeah, I also want to know about um, your you write about it as well as wars. Obviously, there's been we've been, um, you know, we've been killing each other and fighting each other for a, a long time. Yes, um, and we we still are doing that currently, and it's it's always terrible. Um, but from your perspective, what is the, the, that contribution that wars have to to various demographic changes? Yes, I have a a chapter on demographics, on the 
the sort of the widest, broadest features of human populations in terms of fundamental things like the population size, how many people in, in different countries, different, different societies, different nations, um, and things like the birth rate. And one of the stories I look at was one of the indirect consequences of the uh, French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon and some of the laws that he, he had signed in was a drop in the birth rate in France um, through the, the 19th century. Until it was sort of reaching the point that France started having this sort of existential crisis, that its neighbours to the east in Germany were growing, the population was growing far, far faster in Germany than it was in France. And in the Prussian Wars, um, you know, France was 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 licked. It, it was absolutely defeated. Paris was 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 occupied um, by the Prussian forces. And then after that was the unification of, of um, Prussian states into what we would today call the, the German nation state. And so at the end of the 1800s, end of the 19th century, France was in a really weak position. And if it ever went to war again with its German neighbours, just from a sheer force of population numbers, it'd be on a huge back foot. Because ultimately, and in the simplest terms, uh, countries with bigger populations uh, can put the same fraction of young, able, fit men into into armies, and will have therefore the, the bigger military force. And I and I understand that's quite a crude um, way of putting it, but but by and large, bigger armies tend to beat smaller armies, and countries with bigger populations tend to be able to field bigger um, bigger military forces, bigger, bigger armed forces. Mm. So in the run up to the First World War, France was facing this existential crisis as a as a fundamental repercussion of its demographics and ultimately something about the biology of the people there and their reproduction rate like how many children french men and women were choosing to have and what the sort of influences on that were but I also look at a, another story with russia in the second world war which lost a huge number like a shocking number of uh men in in its in its war and particularly in, in the long drawn out uh war in the in the front with with, with with Germany, with the Nazis. And I, I show the diagram in the book where you can look at the population period. So basically you have a sort of a, a bar graph stacked up vertically, looking at the number of people and men and uh, males and females on either side of different age brackets. And it's almost as if this great big bite has been taken out of the population period, mostly on, on the male side of all of the war deaths in, in Russia. And that has echoed down through the generations, because if you have a cohort of people who are um, you know, depleted, they, they've lost a lot of their number through war. When it comes to their generation of growing up and having children, they have fewer children, and then they, those children grow up and have fewer children. So they, there are these echoes, demographic echoes, reverberating down through history. That you can still see very, very clearly in the Russian population period today. And I show that diagram in the book. And this has economic influences. Because the yeah. Russian population period is much more wavy, as it were, than other population pyramids and even other European uh, nations, which also fought in the Second World War. And every time you have a sort of a dip in this population period passing through the labour window, so people between about 18 and about 16, 60 years old, that is your productive 
labor force. That is people who are manufacturing and growing food and paying Mm -hmm. taxes and feeding to the economy. Mm -hmm. As this particularly wavy nature of the Russian population pyramid is moving through that window of the labor force, you're getting either greater or less economic productivity, just just as a function of your demographic structure. And so a lot of the economic growth in Russia in recent decades has been because of that wavy nature and they're now entering uh, to a period when one of the sort of dips is moving through. So you can make predictions about the Russian economy as, as part of the demographic echoes from mm. you know, Second World War mm. generations ago. Mm-hmm. Would this also be where like where the, the baby boomers in the United States and, and maybe even Western Europe, but I think in the United States, also after the Second World War, there was a demographic shift in the other way where there was just like a bunch of people after the war were having lots of kids and they were trying to you know, reproduce is it does it work in the in the in the positive as well or is it only yeah exactly, the exactly. there's there's there are e- economic repercussions of the baby boomer generation um and the, the sort of surge in fertility mm-hmm. after the war when you know the men came back from the front mm-hmm. line uh with their wives or, or meeting new people um you know, the sort of suppression of, of wartime was being eased and, and people were having children when they hadn't been able to for, for several years mm. um, during war. Mm. And that has had economic repercussions as well from, from those baby boomer generation. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting. It's always interesting how things will, something will happen or there'll be a response or reaction. And we never know what the positive or negative I'm, I'm putting a little valence on that, but what, what what's going to happen out of it, right? Yeah. Like, again, recent events, you know, really revolutionized how we consider work and people working you know not maybe in these big uh cubicles anymore or less so right you know, well exactly are... we're seeing repercussions and, and and shifts in society from the corona coronavirus pandemic mm-hmm. um in, in likes of what, what you, you could say was slightly superficial but perhaps our attitude to working from home versus maybe commuting an hour in each direction yep. to go from your hometown into a big city mm-hmm. uh, where you work. Mm-hmm. And clearly technology has enabled that social shift mm-hmm. with the internet and with video conferencing and with people being able to work on shared documents online. You don't physically need to have a bunch of people sat in the same room to effectively, and this links back to cooperation we were talking about previously, for people to work together towards the same endpoint. Um, And I think that trend towards working from home was already happening, but it certainly got a huge boost when we were forced to do so during the coronavirus. And one of the recurring themes in being human is there might have been a biological cause for something. But as soon as that becomes the cultural norm, as soon as people expect that in their lifestyle, it can kind of get locked in, even after that biological driver has disappeared. And again, I look at some demographic examples of that. Once the cultural expectations and cultural norm has changed, that can then persist for generations afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, I'm i very grateful of your time. I want to respect your time, though. Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's been a blast. Thank you so been, very much, once again, for inviting me. So great. The podcast. I, I, I really enjoyed all of this. Uh, just uh, real quick. Uh, so the knowledge, how to re- rebuild our world from scratch is out. Origins, how the earth shaped human history is out. And, um, in, as of, uh, June 1st, being human, how our biology shaped world history will be out. So everyone should go and, uh, pick that up. And, uh, where's the best place to find you, uh, whether online or, or anywhere else? Yes. Yeah, so I, I am blessed with a relatively unique name. Uh, so if you Google <laughs> me, if you Google Lewis Dartnell, uh, you'll go almost instantly to my own homepage. 
Um, you can read about the sort of things I do. You can read about my astrobiology research. I'm looking into possibilities of life on other planets. Um, all the books you just mentioned, uh, knowledge, uh, origins and being human, we've all got websites with lots of extra information and videos you can watch and, and things to read about if you want to dive into, into these topics a bit more or pick up copies of the book from, from your local bookstore or library. Yeah, it's been so much fun. I greatly enjoyed this conversation. I loved all your books and I was so happy we got to do this. So, so big thanks for you. Cheers. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely.